You are listening to the Blockchain Dialogues podcast. All views expressed on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be taken as financial advice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Dialogues podcast with your hosts Krishna and Nikhil. In this podcast series, we analyze various cutting-edge technologies and projects in the field of blockchains, DLTs and cryptocurrencies. In today's episode, we are going to be discussing a project that is focused on one of the key aspects of the web 3.0 paradigm, which is decentralized storage. The project that we're going to be discussing today is called Swarm. Swarm defines itself as a decentralized storage and communication system for a sovereign digital society. To discuss the project in detail, we are joined from Hungary by one of the founders and team leads at Swarm, Daniel A. Nagy. Daniel, a very warm welcome to you from Nikhil and myself. Thank you. So to begin, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, uh, what got you into blockchain and crypto and your journey so far? So my general interest in cryptography and its applications uh, began with uh, reading Bruce Schneier's Thick Red book, Applied Cryptography. Uh, and it's a fascinating book whose basic premise, which turned out to be not quite as true as everybody hoped uh, at the beginning, uh, including the author, of course, is that cryptography is this technology that brings like military-grade security to the hands of the common man. You know, with hindsight, we know that it's not quite so, but reading that book, that there are these algorithms that transform information in ways that are hopelessly difficult to counterfeit to or to decrypt without the appropriate keys and so on, it gave this sort of feeling that this technology has a potential for revolutionizing everything. And after reading that book, I was also reading the essays of uh, Nick Sabo about smart contracts and digital cash and things like that. So this is still before the, before blockchain, before, before Bitcoin. So we're talking about 2005, 2006. So that's, uh, that's when I got hooked. So, so this is after, but this is still after the concept of digital cash, right? Because if I remember rightly, yeah, uh, we had digital cash before uh, then, I think in the 2000s and the uh, late 90s, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, correct. It was just not, not decentralized. Yeah. So the first, the first digital cash was by uh, David Chom. Exactly, yeah. And uh, yeah, Charmian Cash was also a fascinating concept, which got me very enthusiastic. So I was already presenting at the Financial Cryptography Conference in 2008, so we're still one year before Bitcoin. But you know, something something was missing, and it was the blockchain. So, so when it came about in 2009, basically many of us had this feeling that, okay, this is it. 
now 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 the missing piece of the puzzle has has arrived it has so now, now everything has come together and of course this initial enthusiasm might have faded a little bit because things turned out to be more complex than people anticipated and uh, many problems that were hand-waved like scalability that okay it will be just solved it turned out to be much harder than than people initially expected but still i think that uh, those pioneering years kind of set the tone for for what came later and uh, so how 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 did you actually uh, then uh, so obviously you were doing these uh, presentations and you're obviously very interested in the space uh, but how how did you kind of like uh, happen upon ethereum swarm project and kind of get involved there and why that one versus any of the many uh, other projects outside uh, out available so it was my friend victor tron who invited me into ethereum to work with him on Swarm. Awesome. Okay. And uh, did you, I mean, intellectually, uh, what do you find compelling about Swarm? So Swarm solves one of the scaling problems of the blockchain, which is storing information. So if you store information directly in the blockchain, it's hideously expensive. So smart contracts and distributed applications cannot store all the information that needs to be stored directly on the blockchain unless, you know, there's some magic scalability solution. Hmm. Yeah. Which there doesn't seem to be on the horizon even. Uh, So there needs to be some off-chain content address decentralized storage which plays nice with the blockchain. And by plays nice, I mean it uses the same cryptographic primitives that the EVM uses so that EVM-based smart contracts can can parse and uh, verify data structures that live on this uh, distributed storage and basically that's Swarm. So that that, that was the original... uh, goal of, of Swarm to to store the data of, of distributed applications and maybe even blockchain data later, at least historical, like archival data. Yeah, so uh, just like before we uh, go deeper into Swarm and, you know, how it works, uh, Daniel, for our audience, could you... Uh, you know, just, just touch on uh, a general idea about, you know, some of the problems with the centralized model of storage that we have today for the regular applications, you know, for, for, for the layperson, you know, who thinks of storage, you know, the, the, what they're currently using, whether it be with Amazon or Facebook or whatever it be. Uh, and, you know, why we need decentralized storage as a whole, you know, to solve some of the problems that exist with the centralized model. So what decentralization brings to storage is permissionless publishing, I would say that basically whatever information you store, you don't need uh, anyone's permission. Of course, you still need to pay for it because, I mean, the the economics doesn't go anywhere. So storing data costs economic resources, so it needs to be paid for. But centralized solutions, like, for example, Amazon S3, it comes with a third-party the service provider, Amazon in this example, 
who exerts uh, quite a bit of control and, uh, you know, they can come under pressure to, uh, to remove that data. For example, if, uh, it for some reason is not, not allowed in some jurisdictions or to, they also get to see who accesses that data so they can do analytics on everybody else's data. So there's, there, there's this, they get to wield some power that is not inherent in the, in the problem of storing data. Right. So privacy of data, you would say, is the central thing at question here, right? And that, that's the main problem that uh, leads to, you know, different projects looking at decentralized storage as, as a future way of storing data, you would say? Well, I wouldn't say that everything will will be stored in a decentralized fashion, but I'm saying that certain things, for example, distributed applications that are meant to be unstoppable, just like the smart contracts that live on the blockchain, uh, they are the ones that need to be stored in a decentralized fashion, as well as I would say some high-value public interest data. So the examples here would be like the accumulated knowledge of humanity, such as Wikipedia or uh, OpenStreetMap. And there are all these projects that have accumulated enormous volumes of uh, public interest data, which is very valuable. But as long as it's stored in a centralized fashion as it currently is, it is uh, vulnerable to, uh, you know, the fire of the Library of Alexandria. So basically they can come offline and become unavailable just because the underlying storage providers decide, or they, they just fail for whatever reason. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be, you know, ill intent on anybody's behalf. They just might fail and become, and make these, these data sets unavailable. Whereas if they are stored in a decentralized fashion, then they will always be there for, for humanity to, to use and enjoy. And also, uh, in a centralized, in their current centralized model, they're grappling with an impossible task of coming up with what is the official truth. So Wikipedia grapples with these problems of edit wars and freeze, freezing pages and vandalism and so on. Whereas in a decentralized model, when forking is cheap, basically when there are different opinions about certain things, then the data set can live in uh, two different versions. And, uh, you know, it's up to, up to some services to, to curate. Right. So, uh, actually, just to kind of push back a little bit, uh, I think, um, we have, you've kind of listed out quite a few concepts. I have one, one, and I just wanted to kind of parse, uh, pick apart and kind of go into a few of them. Uh, so one is basically you said that, you know, uh, it is, uh, uh, decentralization and putting your, putting your data in a decentralized network like Swarm definitely kind of gives you like this permissionless, unstoppable, uh, uh, you know, application. 
idea and and that you should put that uh, in uh, in the, the swamp because of that uh, and then basically we talked about the library of alexandria and you know the books burning but uh, and so, and, so, and so i'd like to kind of pick apart uh, a couple of the concepts there and one is basically uh, if you take amazon or any of the modern cloud providers right uh, they do have a distributed system. They may not be decentralized from a uh, commercial perspective, so it'll be one company, but from a technical perspective, they are decentralized, right? So the Library of Alexandria thing would be more from a commercial perspective as uh, as if, I mean, as maybe Amazon goes bankrupt or something, right? So some, that's that's probably, yeah, that's probably a better comparison. Um uh, but uh, again, to push back a little bit or play a little bit of a devil's advocate, you could do that with the Swarm protocol as well, right? So if the Swarm protocol itself got corrupted, then uh, that's a point of failure, right? The protocol would then, it it it, it would be a, uh, you put your files in the Swarm protocol, then you'd lose those files. So the argument might be that, hey, okay, I should probably put it in Swarm as well as in IPFS, for example, uh, or Filecoin uh, or CO, any of these. You should put it in all of them uh, just from a risk-reward perspective. Uh, what do you say to that? Do you think that's that's uh, fair or uh, do you think that there's something I'm missing out there? No, I think it's it's fair not to keep all your eggs in one basket. And also, for example, I like the, uh, you're mentioning IPFS. So IPFS is a system for uh, addressing and uh, retrieving information. Mm -hmm. It has very, very flexible API. It has a very flexible API. So it is possible, it hasn't been done yet, but it is possible to make all Swarm content available under one IPFS namespace. So you could access Swarm through IPFS. Oh, okay. It it would be really nice if somebody actually took the time and effort to code it up because these two projects really are, to some extent, complementary to each other because IPFS right. doesn't store information. In IP, if you upload something to IPFS, the data itself doesn't leave your computer you just register it in this distributed uh, directory. And IPFS is, uh, APIs are sufficiently flexible to allow for the use of swarms, hashes, and other primitives in, in such a way that would make all swarm content available through IPFS addressing. And I personally would really like to see it come to to this at some point. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, and, and uh, I mean, again, from the perspective, like we talked about, it makes it easier then to uh, de-risk the fact that you're putting uh, some of your files only in, in Swarm versus maybe another one. So just to come back a little bit onto that again. So when we say that putting content uh, or putting any content on uh, a decentralized file storage system, uh, not just Swarm, it could be any one of them uh, that are currently out there, uh, requires money, right? And uh, I just wanted you to kind of 
talk us through a little bit. So when you say money, is that a upfront single amount? Is that a recurring amount? Uh, is that something, what happens if you, you know, stop paying? Uh, what happens to your content? Is there, are there, what are the, what are the parameters around this particular aspect of paying for storage? So for storing, storing, storing and making available information, you, what you need is economic resources, which can be purchased for money, but it's not money per se. So what you really need, of course, is uh, storage and bandwidth. Those are the two main resources that need to be provided, right? Mm -hmm. So if the system is designed well, then any participant can contribute storage and bandwidth to the network. Right. And, and store whatever data is there. And what, uh, what the payment part, what the economics part of Swarm tries to achieve is that if you want to keep some data available, then somehow, so somebody needs to provide those resources. And one way to do that, one way to do that is that you simply pay. And this is a recurring payment, of course, because you need to pay as long as you want to keep it stored. Mm -hmm. And if you stop uh, paying and there's no other reason for storing it, then it will be eventually forgotten. So it will be overwritten by more recent data and so on. But there might be other reasons for storing data. So, for example, if some content is popular and is downloaded regularly by many, uh, many users, and they're paying for the bandwidth, then in order to, in order to earn bandwidth payment, you might decide to store that data or cache that data and it will be kept available despite nobody paying for it. Ah, okay. So I was saying that in, in Swarm, it's not, it's not specified that what happens to data if it's not paid for, it can still be kept available for other reasons, and there might be other reasons to keep it available. But there is, or more precisely, there will be, because it's it's a part on which we're still working, but there will be a way for it, for, for directly rewarding the stores for storing some content. But it's by no means the only reason for them to do it. Great. So, I, I so think you met... Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I think, you know, uh, for our audience to actually understand this a little bit better, uh, it would uh, help, uh, Daniel, if you could actually, you know, uh, walk us through the technology behind Swarm and, you know, explain from a tech standpoint and then also touch upon the BZZ token that you have. And, you know, from, from that point on, if you could just explain the overall economics of how the system works. Yep, that's a, that's a big one. Uh, so the... The bird's eye view of Swarm technology is that all information that is stored in Swarm is first divided up into uniform size chunks of four kilobytes, or at most four kilobytes. They can be smaller, but no, not bigger. And then depending on the, on the, uh, hash of those chunks, they are distributed, uh, among the store nodes. So store nodes form a network. So that network is Swarm. And uh, they have this specific uh, topology called Kademlia, whereby these chunks can be routed to where they belong. So if you upload a chunk to any Swarm node, 
it will pass it on until it reaches the actual storer node that will be responsible for storing it. And basically this way, if you upload a whole bunch of chunks into Swarm, then they will be dispersed among the storer nodes, roughly in a uniform fashion, subject to some variance, of course. And uh, retrieval works in a similar way. If you request a chunk from a, from a Swarm node, then if it's not responsible for for storing it, then it will ask another node which is closer to where it belongs and eventually it will the the retrieval request will reach the node that is responsible for storing that particular information. So that's the very simplified bird's eye view of how how information is stored in Swarm. And uh, the Attached economics is such that basically if one node wants some service from another node, then there's a pair. So on each connection in this network, there's a pairwise accounting where the peers keep track of who, which node provided service to the other node. And if these services get disbalanced, so one node is overwhelmingly providing and the other is overwhelmingly consuming, then this balance can be settled by the BZZ token, or if it's not settled, then that connection will be broken. It will be the, the, the node that is being exploited without payment will eventually disconnect. So in order to stay connected, nodes will need to settle their accounts either by providing reciprocal service or by paying a BZZ token. That's the most basic uh, swap accounting or uh, swarm accounting or the abbreviation is swap, which is, which stands for swarm accounting protocol. So this is how bandwidth is uh, accounted for. So if, for example, a node is constantly downloading without uploading anything, without storing anything, without caching anything, then it will have to pay, pay with bus tokens in order to get high quality service. Now there's a little detail here that these accounts are slowly settled just by waiting. So there's some baseline service that is provided for free, but it's very, very slow. So that's, uh, it's actually very similar to BitTorrent in that respect. So if you... So if you're a leecher, like the term in BitTorrent is if you're a leecher, then your speeds go down. And if you provide seeding, if you seed your files and provide files to others, it goes back up. Right, but whereas BitTorrent only provides... So in BitTorrent, the only economic transaction is uh, barter. So basically, you can only pay with reciprocal service. In Swarm, you can pay by reciprocal service, but you can also pay by just payment using a token. So so one aspect of this, though, that you didn't touch upon is uh, what happens to the scenario where somebody like, for example, I buy an NFT, right? So I buy maybe an NFT of a video that's a 250 megabyte video 
of maybe a basketball game or something. I don't know. Uh, but I and I, and I store it uh, in one of the. I mean, I pay for it and I store it, and then the bandwidth basically is I kind of transmit the file over to the Swarm network. But uh, so so what is the accounting of the physical storage of it, right? So if I'm sending it to say KK and KK, I pay KK for the bandwidth of transferring it, what about the cost of actually occupying 250 megs of his hard drive? So I haven't touched upon that yet. So I have only talked about the bandwidth accounting so far. Storage accounting works differently. So in storage accounting, the metaphor that we use is that of postage stamps. So basically, in order to have something stored in Swarm, you need to attach a little piece of cryptographically protected information to each chunk of this information, which we call a postage stamp. And you purchase those uh, postage stamps in batches. And the money that you pay, the bus tokens that you pay for postage stamps are eventually going to be redistributed between the store nodes. Now, in case of the NFT, uh, the fact that you have purchased an NFT doesn't guarantee that the uh, file will get will be stored forever. So somebody will still need to pay for that fi- file to be stored. But one property of Swarm, which is that its content address, makes sure that if you re-upload that file, so let, let's suppose that that file gets forgotten from Swarm, it gets garbage collected because nobody paid for it, but you as the owner of the NFT or somebody else re-uploads the file to Swarm, it will have the exact same address. So you can still prove through your NFT that you are the owner of that particular video. Right. So it's kind of similar to the IPFS hash. It is a unique address. Exactly. So IPFS is... uh, is, is, is content addressed as well. And IPFS actually has pluggable hashes, so you can actually use the Swarm hash in IPFS as well. Awesome. Okay. Um, the other thing I just quickly wanted to touch upon was you had mentioned that uh, the smallest uh, size you can, uh, or rather the largest size of a packet in Swarm or a chunk in Swarm is 4 kilobytes. So is all the bandwidth accounting and the postage accounting based off a four kilobyte chunk. So if it is a 250 MB file, I'll have to have that many postage stamps uh, in order to upload it, correct? Yes. Awesome, okay. And uh, so the postage stamp concept uh, is is very interesting. Uh, So you attach the set of postage stamps. What happens if you want to store it in multiple locations? Is there a concept of storing it in multiple locations uh, in 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 Swarm, is it possible for me to say, like like in Filecoin, I can say, hey, okay, I'm going to create a there's a marketplace, and I can go to two or three different providers and create contracts with them to put my NFT there. Um, is it something similar in Swarm? Do I uh, can I upload this to three or four places uh, for redundancy? So in Swarm, redundancy is handled automatically. So there's a level of redundancy, I think it's fourfold, which uh, Swarm guarantees that as long as uh, as the appropriate amount for storing the information is paid, it will be stored 
on at least uh, four nodes. I'm not sure about this four, so it's 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 a system-wide constant. So there is a certain redundancy built into Swarm. You don't get to choose your level of redundancy as a user, but what you can do is uh, the reason being that in Swarm you don't store information in one place, right? So all these chunks they go out and they get get to be stored by different nodes. Ah, okay. Something like sharding, I would say? Yeah, similar. Yeah, right. And uh, what happens if, say, uh, you said it will be like uh, uh, stored in different nodes and there's a redundancy of four, uh, which is a system concept, like you said. Uh, so how does... The, uh, there are two, two aspects to this question. One is basically... Uh, how does the posted stamp amount get distributed automatically to whoever's hosting the various chunks? And uh, B, uh, what happens if some of these uh, providers go offline, right? So is that mean, does that mean that uh, there's no, how do I kind of recover from, uh, or maybe is there a threshold beyond which I cannot recover my file? So let me start with the second question. Uh, so if some nodes go offline, it means that the total amount of storage available for chunks in Swarm is reduced, which will mean that the chunks with the cheapest postage stamps are the ones that are going to get garbage collected. So there's a, there's a compact, competition here that basically the more the more you pay the the more reliable the more reliable the storage is exactly and as i said in the beginning if you don't pay anything uh, you still might get your information stored for other reasons so the baseline is not quite zero but the more you pay the more reliable it becomes and uh, if nodes leave the uh network, it will trigger some reorganizations in the topology and also some reshuffling of the chunks. So there will there's a process going on called syncing when uh, basically nodes download the chunks that belo- belong to them. And if there are nodes leaving, leaving, then these areas of responsibility, they change. So there's some self-healing process of the of the uh, storage but of course there there are no miracles so since there's less storage available something will need to be garbage collected and that will be the the information that got the cheapest postage stamps on it or no postage stamps at all so that's the second question and the first question is how the postage stamp payments are going to be redistributed so uh that is something that we're currently still working on, so I cannot give you a complete answer because we don't have it yet. So currently there's no redistribution. So currently the way it works is that postage payment is simply burned. But that's obviously not a, not a long-term solution. It's not, not economically sustainable. Right. There will be some redistribution. It probably will be probabilistic, so it will be some sort of a lottery that if you, if you're storing many postage stamped 
chunks, then your chances of winning that lottery is greater. And basically there will be some lottery that allows the storers to earn an expected reward, which is roughly proportional to how much they are storing. So that's the basic idea. And the difficult part is, of course, to prevent cheating. Right. Uh, absolutely. So we can, we, we should actually think about uh, the attack vectors at some point. But just before we do that, uh, one thought that occurred to me was, uh, okay, so we are basically saying that uh, we've got redistribution happening and the sinking happening continuously and uh, the cheapest uh, cheapest postage stamp or the content associated to cheapest postage stamp or no postage stamp is garbage collected. Uh, what happens if, so from a, from a realistic scenario, so what happens if a majority of the content is free and then nobody's paying for it or just uh, updating? Does it mean that uh, you know, so I've got like say 10 pieces of media, uh, in the network, uh, on 10 nodes, uh, one goes away, uh, but nine of them basically are not paid for, only one is paid for. And if two nodes go away, which of the remaining nine go away? Is that like a random thing or is that, is there a, a formula for that as well? Well, it depends on, 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 on other factors, for example the popularity, as I mentioned. So if there's something that is constantly being downloaded, it will be basically cached because... So when we're trading bandwidth, if I download something and then I upload the same thing, I kind of pay as much as I earn. But if I download it once and upload it multiple times, then I can actually earn. So there's there's some financial incentive for caching information. And if if some content is downloaded regularly, then it means that it's worth caching. And that means that garbage collection is guided by by the popularity of content, among other things. But I think that I, I would say that popularity download popularity is the is the most salient factor in deciding what gets garbage collected. So, uh, with all that's going on in crypto, uh, Daniel, what do you think uh, is the the key area of focus? You know, for this year, uh, what do you think about the future of crypto, decentralized storage? Uh, where do you see everything fit in? Well, as they say, it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. So this year, I'm really counting on some kind of breakthrough in uh, scalability. So I think that scalability solutions for various blockchains, be it layer one or layer two, will emerge as winners. That's one thing I really expect and hope for. In decentralized storage, I wouldn't expect that there will be some consolida- consolidation. It's too early for that. So I would, I would expect a parallel development and some cross-pollination of ideas between the projects and uh, I think many decentralized storage solutions, including Swarm, will come closer to being usable for specific a growing array of specific applications. So I think that we will see growing adoption. So just uh, specifically on the uh, Ethereum Swarm story, 
Uh, I just wanted to spend a little time on that. One of the things, obviously, was that when uh, the Ethereum Foundation started, uh, we had three main projects. Right? We had Ethereum, we had Swarm, and then we had Whisper. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, recently I was looking, I was seeing some YouTube videos where we were talking about the state of Swarm. And uh, I was given to understand that Whisper and Swarm kind of like now gotten together or mixed together. Uh, and then this that Swarm is basically doing both the storage and the communications part. Is that correct? Yes, I would say it's correct. So Swarm has a communication component, which is called uh, PSS. Okay. I was just kind of wondering, so obviously it's more than just digital storage. You've, you've got a few other projects as well, right? And I was just wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, what, what you have uh, in terms of your roadmap for these projects uh, how and how does that kind of fit into the, maybe you can talk about the Ethereum Swarm ecosystem. So there are, there are several projects that uh, leverage, leverage Swarm. So there's, there's this whole Fair OS and Fair Drive initiative, uh, which is championed by Data Fund. So these are tools for managing personal data and it uses Swarm as a storage backend. Right. Then uh, there's also the BZZ token itself. Uh, so is, is there kind of any plans around uh, the governance of the token? Are you, are you guys looking at, you know, the standard decentralized organization uh, app approach or do you have uh, anything... Uh, different in that particular aspect of go the governance of uh, the BZZ token? Well, we need to tread very carefully here because, you know, government governance mechanisms, if they get fully automated and decentralized, they become unstoppable. And if there's a bug somewhere, then the bug is also unstoppable. Yeah. So we're not going to rush that. But uh, okay. eventually, yes, we would like to have decentralized governance for 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 for, for, for the BZZ token. Right, and uh, you had mentioned the Fairwave consumer client. I think uh, there was also, uh, I think, some efforts being made to create a, a BZZ uh, node, right? So to be able to easily uh, start a B client and uh, set up a B client as part of creating, uh, I mean, encouraging developers to join. The Can you, can you elaborate a little bit upon uh, what the B client tools are? Is, is there kind of like an API? Uh, w what's available uh, for maybe a DAP developer or somebody to come and build on the uh, Swarm uh, network? So just for our listeners, B is the name of the Swarm client. So a Swarm node, yes. a node in the Swarm network, the reference implementation is called B. And currently that's the only implementation. So currently in order to install and run a B node, you need to be quite technical because you need to have some, some kind of access to the XDAI blockchain because so, okay. Uh, so currently, uh, Swarm runs on a sidechain of Ethereum called XDAI. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a temporary scalability solution because 
Ethereum mainnet transactions are just prohibitively expensive. So first you need to, first you need to bridge your bus tokens from Ethereum mainnet to XDAI and then uh, use them there. Uh, but on the other hand, the addresses from ENS, they are on the main ch- on Ethereum mainnet, which means that a B client needs to have access to both a XDAI client and an Ethereum mainnet client. And also it needs to handle keys, private keys, for which uh, an Ethereum tool called Clef is used. So currently running a B node requires quite a bit of expertise. It's, it's documented. So there's a step by step description of how to do it, but it's not user friendly by any means. Right. And we have this objective to build automated tools that would enable users to set up B nodes easily. So when all this complexity that I have just mentioned is taken care of either with sane defaults or with automation or by some other means, but in such a way that the user doesn't have to concern themselves with it. Uh, for developers, there's a JavaScript library called BJS, which uh, allows, which uh, provides a lot of important high-level functions on top of the B API. And I would say that that's, that's, th- th- those are the most important parts. Do do you guys have kind of like a community on Discord maybe or something uh, where developers could talk about how to develop on B client? Is that something part of your? Yes, yes, we do have a Discord community. Okay, that's awesome. And uh, so obviously there is a JS client. You you discuss that. I'm I'm kind of assuming that uh, the Fairwave consumer client is built to interact with a B client and then uh, use the uh, Swarm network uh, as a whole. Uh, so you said, you mentioned the B client as a reference implementation. Uh, do you have any thoughts of grants or any kind of encouragement to create alternative implementations from uh, for, for the Ethereum Swarm? Definitely. So any team that picks up the task of... Uh of developing an alternative implementation, maybe in some different programming language, uh, will definitely receive a grant from Swarm Foundation. Um, So, yeah. Uh, KK, do you have anything you wanted to particularly ask? No, uh, nothing else from my end. Uh, You know, it's been a fascinating conversation. This is the first time, you know, we're having somebody on the show who's uh, talking about uh, decentralized storage, you know, in, in, in great detail. So, and uh, I, I think it comes at a very good time also, you know, when last year was all about NFTs and the metaverse. And this year, Web 3.0 seems to be the central theme, you know, of what the industry is going to focus on, right? So, so definitely, uh, decentralized storage is one of the key pieces which is required to really enable uh, anything useful on Web 3.0, right? So I think it's something that, uh, you know, we should all be looking closely at. So thank you for your time, Daniel. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me. Once again, that was Daniel A. Nagy from Swarm. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play and Spotify. Also, you can learn more about us on bcdialogues.com. Thanks again for joining. See you next time.